0: beginning at verse number one, then came together unto him the Pharisees, unto Jesus the Pharisees walk up to, and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say, unwashing hands, they found fault. They had an issue. They had a problem. And notice a dispute about ritual washings, a dispute about ritual washings. Religious leaders from Jerusalem have arrived now to find fault and to ask questions about the failure of the disciples to observe ceremonial washings. And so this official delegation uh, of religious leaders from Jerusalem arrived to evaluate the ministry of Jesus. And of course, on the surface, nothing wrong with that, uh, really. And the concept of uh, evaluating Jesus' ministry, that was fine, an outward appearance, they we're protecting Israel from a potentially false messiah or a false prophet, a false teacher. But the way that they actually evaluated Jesus was all wrong. And first of all, they made up their mind about Jesus. And we live in a world today that's already made up their mind, it seems, about Jesus oh, he was a great prophet, oh, he was just a great teacher. He's certainly not God. He's someone's religious guru, but he's not my savior. He's not my Messiah. He's not my God. And these Pharisees had already made up their minds about Jesus. Secondly, they did not evaluate Jesus against the measure of God's word. They evaluated him against the measure of their religious traditions. And so the religious leaders held these elaborate ceremonial washings and and not washing for the sake of cleanliness. Now, we know uh, we have four bathrooms in this building, right? And so you got at least four different sinks, plus two if we count the kitchens, right? So you have zero excuse not to have clean hands here at Wedgwood Street. We have so many water basins, so many many, uh, 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 even uh, hand sanitizer pumps, just all over the place, right? But these people were not washing for the sake of cleanliness. The observant Jews of the time really strictly observed a rigid and extensive ritual for washing before meals. And the hand washing described here was purely ceremonial. It was just for show. It wasn't enough to properly clean your hands if they were very dirty. You would first have to wash your hands to make them clean and then perform the ritual to make them spiritually clean. And so they even had an accompanying prayer to be said during this ritual ritual. Uh, washing. They said, blessed be thou, O Lord, King of the universe, who sanctified us by the laws and commanded us to wash the hands. And did he really? No, God did not command them to wash hands in a ceremonial way. And these washings were commanded by tradition, not by scripture, not by the the Pentateuch. And so uh, these religious leaders were not looking at the first five books of your Bible, and they knew this, and yet they still criticized the disciples for not obeying these traditions. In Judaism of that time, they honored the written law. I was in Ohio about three years ago, and uh, I I was basically handing out literature to different people of the Jewish faith, and so it was so interesting to meet on the street a rabbi, and he was angry, and he was really upset. I still remember his first name. His first name was Phineas, and Phineas uh, drives up to us uh, in his little minivan, and he hops out, and he says, OK, you guys are handing out all this literature, and this is dangerous, and I'm going to take my cell phone, and I'm going to record this conversation. I still follow him on Instagram because he's just such an interesting guy. And he was one of these guys who was all about tradition, and he was all about valuing uh, what the, the, the other rabbis in the past had said. And I could talk a very long time about the different conversations we had with Phineas, uh, but uh, I'm going to focus with what we have right before us. And so we have this, the, this spoken law, this spoken law. Phineas was very much about the spoken law, uh, which was written down, but it's all man's tradition and interpretation on top of uh, the written law, okay? The, the law that God's actually approved. And so many of the Jewish leader. Leader people in Jesus' time, they honored the uh, spoken law more than the written law. I've written in my notes, Rabbi Eliezer once said, uh, He who expounds the scriptures in opposition to the tradition uh, really has no share in the world to come. And the Mishnah uh, was a collection of Jewish traditions in the Talmud, and that records, It is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis. Than to contradict Scripture itself. These traditions were merely interpretations of interpretations of interpretations of traditions. And so it was Jesus' refusal to support the validity of the spoken law, which made him an object of concerted attack by the scribes. And for the Pharisees and all the Jews uh, do not eat unless they wash their hands in this special way, holding the tradition of the elders. And for these ceremonial washings, special stone vessels of water were kept because ordinary water might be unclean. To wash your hands in a special way, you started by taking at least enough of this water to fill one and one-half eggshells. And then you poured the water over your hands, starting at the fingers and then running it down toward your wrist. And then you, you cleansed each palm by rubbing the fist of the other hand into it. And then you poured water over your hands again, and this time from the wrist toward the fingers. And so a really strict Jew would do this not only before the meal, but between each course. And the rabbis were deadly serious about this. They said that bread eaten with unwashed hands was no better than excrement or toilet waste. And one rabbi who failed to perform the ritual washing, he was excommunicated. And so another rabbi was imprisoned by the Romans and he used his ration of water for ceremonial cleansing instead of drinking, and he nearly died of thirst He was regarded as a great hero for the sacrifice. It's easy for us to think that these religious leaders or this whole religious culture was really stupid or really phony for the emphasis on traditions like this, but we don't realize how subtly these things emerge or how spiritual they seem to be, especially in the beginning. Many rituals or traditions seem to be built on unshakable spiritual logic. For example, doesn't God want us to honor him in everything we do? Didn't God command the priest to wash their hands before serving him? Uh, Shouldn't every faithful follower of God have the same devotion as a priest? Isn't every meal sacred to God? Shouldn't we take every opportunity then to make ourselves pure before the Lord? Doesn't God say in Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4 Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands. And so when you ask the questions like that, it's very easy to say yes, 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 until you have agreed with the logic supporting the tradition. But if in the end we have the word of man or a tradition of man, a ritual of man, that has the same weight as the word of God, then we are wrong. Our spiritual logic in this case does not matter. Look at verses 6 through 9. Uh, Jesus answered and said to them, Well hath Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, you actors, you fakers, you jokers, as it is written, these people, this people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. How be in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye do hold the tradition of men. Jesus rebuked strongly because these leaders were too worried about trivial things, and when they focused on traditions, they excluded everybody else who didn't keep the traditions, and so they discouraged them from coming to God. They spoke very prettily about the Lord, but had no love for Him at all. Their worship was a farce, and Jesus said that their heart was actually far away. It is possible to have the image of being religious or spiritual, but actually be far from God. It is not worth denying the power to keep the form, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, the New Testament talks about. And so dangerous sometimes when, uh, you know, we go to church in our Sunday best and we we dress up and we look our very best. And uh, sometimes we'll spend more time uh, uh, shining, spit shoe, sign, and polish and looking all good, but then we haven't even spent time with the Lord that morning. And that can be a very dangerous thing. It's just a mask. It's just like any sort of actor in Hollywood. And the word in the ancient Greek language, uh, talking about hypocrite, it refers to an actor or someone who wears a mask. The image they promote is more important to them than what they actually are. And so would God say something similar to us? They attend church, but their heart is far from me. They read their Bible, but their heart is far from me. They can pray really nice in public, but their heart is far from me. They put money in the offering, but their heart is far from me. They do ministry. They love to sing, but their heart is far from me. They talk to others about Jesus, but their heart is far from me. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Taking a commandment or opinion of men and teaching it or promoting it as doctrine for the word of God is what supports something called legalism. And so it gives man's word the same weight as God's word. Not everything in the Christian life, watch please, not everything in the Christian life is a matter of right and wrong. Some things, many things are simply matters of personal preference or personal conscience before God. The scriptures do not command ritual washing, for example, before meals. If you want to do it, then fine. Do it unto the Lord without a sense of spiritual superiority before your brothers and sisters. If you don't want to do it, fine, fine. Also, don't do it unto the Lord, and don't look down upon those whose conscience compels them to do the ritual washing. It would be bad enough to add to the commandments of men, uh, add the commandments of men to the Bible, but almost without fail, the religious hypocrite will go the next step to reject the commandment of God and to keep his tradition. And doing this, they subtract the real essence and focus of God's word. In verse number 10, uh, we see something else as Jesus continues his thought. Moses said, honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father and mother, let him die the death. But ye say, the Pharisees say, instead, if a man shall say to his father or mother, it is Corban. That is to say, it's a gift. That is, it's dedicated to God. By whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And so this requires a little bit of explanation. An example of how their traditions dishonored God here is that they had this practice of not helping their parents with these goods that they have devoted to the Lord. And Moses uh, said uh, something along these lines, and the Old Testament clearly laid out the responsibility of children to honor their parents in this. (coughs) When children are young... And in their parents' household, they are also responsible to obey their parents. But even when they're no longer responsible to obey, they are still responsible to honor. And whatever profit you might have received from me is Corbin. And so in this practice, a son could say that his possessions or his savings, they were Corbin, that is especially devoted to God and therefore unavailable to help his parents. Uh, Dad, I'm using this for God. Mom, I'm using this for the Lord. And so uh, you can't pick on me and say I got to give you an allowance or anything like that, that's crazy, this is for God. And so they would reserve some things really for themselves. And so making the Word of God of no effect through their tradition. Through this, a son could completely disobey the command to honor his parents and do it while being ultra-religious. And Jesus called uh, this, making the Word of God of no effect through their tradition. Verse number 14, verse number 14, Mark seven fourteen when Jesus had called all the people unto him, after making a scene, I guess, right? He's calling out the religious leaders. The religious leaders started it, by the way, right? And he calls all the people. He says, all right, all right. I'm going to have a little talk with you. He said unto them, hearken unto me, every one of you. Understand, listen up. There is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. But things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. Because there are some men Who don't have ears to hear? Not everyone has ears to hear. In this specific context, Jesus spoke about ceremonial cleanliness in regards to food, and he anticipated that time when all the foods would be declared clean or kosher and uh, acceptable to eat in Acts chapter number 10. (coughs) The fundamental principle is simple eating with unclean hands or any other such thing that we put into us is not defiling. Rather, what we say and do and bring to the outside reveals that we have dirty hearts on the inside. I mean, duh, that seems obvious to us now, but when it was first spoken, this was revolutionary for them. They didn't understand. They, they, they thought it was unusual, and they couldn't believe it. In verse 17, Jesus enters the house, and when He was entered into the house, verse 17, uh, from the people, His disciples asked Him concerning the parable this earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And he saith unto them, Are ye so without understanding also? Do ye not perceive that whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, and it cannot defile him? And uh, verse 21 says, For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, and the list goes on. All these evil things come from within and defile man. And so God is far more concerned about what comes out of us than what goes into us, which is not to say you shouldn't eat healthy. I believe in eating healthy. That's very important, but um, uh, within the context, understand what it's saying here, okay? This is especially true when it comes to foods and traditions and rituals. And this 13-part list that exposes the kind of evil, uh, it really exposes the kind of evil that lives inside the human heart. You don't need to travel long distance to find the source of these sins, Melina. Ms. Ross, you don't have to conduct a really intensive, uh, deep search. And all you need to do is look at yourself. All I need to do is look at myself in the mirror. And Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers once said, the source from which these rivers of pollution proceeds is the natural heart of man. Sin is not a splash of mud upon man's exterior it is a filth generated within himself and every out of uh, outward act of sin is preceded by an inward act of choice uh, consider the word blasphemy uh, when this is used of words against man to blaspheme against a man that means slander when the word blaspheme is used of words spoken against god uh, it's blasphemy it carries the meaning of blasphemy it means insulting man or god and so Uh, We see in verses uh, 24 through 26, the rest of this chapter now detailing two wonderful examples of the healing power of Jesus. First, a Gentile woman's request. And from thence he arose, verse 24, and went into the borders of Tyre and Zidon and entered into a house and would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. Jesus went into Gentile territory And so Jesus traveled some 50 miles to the north to visit these Gentile cities. And this was unusual in Jesus' ministry because, remember, he was sent into the Jews, right? And so he was focused on the lost sheep of Israel. It also shows that Jesus did not obey the Jewish traditions that said a faithful Jew would have nothing to do with Gentiles to the point they would never enter a Gentile house. The previous incident shows Jesus wiping out the distinction between clean and unclean uh, foods. Can it be here in symbol? We have him wiping out the difference between clean and unclean people. Just as a Jew would never soil his lips with forbidden foods, he would never soil his life with uh, unclean contact with the Gentile. And at the same time, Jesus didn't want to needlessly offend people. He knew that at the time, breaking down the wall between Jew and Gentile by bringing them into one body was still in the future. The church was in the future. And so while not keeping his presence in the region, the Gentile region strictly secret, he didn't publicize his arrival. But verse 24 says he could not be hid. Jesus could not be hid. And it's a glorious principle that Jesus cannot be hidden. Anytime Jesus is present at all, he finds a way to touch people's lives and because he cannot be hidden. And so a woman approaches Jesus to intercede for her daughter, and she's a picture of an intercessor because she made her daughter's needs her own that's what an intercessor does. And it's so good to know that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And so uh, in verses 27 and uh, 28, 29, 30, Jesus responds to this woman's request. I've always really wondered about this next part, uh, even as a Bible student and just growing up in my life, because I've always seen Jesus as a kind person, a really gentle person, especially to poor people and to weak people. He saved his greatest indictment for the religious leaders, right? The people who deserved it. Uh, for the hypocrites and the people who knew better. Like, you know better, and that's why I'm talking to you like this. That's why Jesus was, was so, so harsh. He called them vipers. He, he called them uh, hypocrites. Uh, but really here, Jesus, we know, has the full authority to call people out on their shenanigans, and only in his name can we identify what is right and wrong. So Jesus can say whatever he wants. Fine he's saying it, so that's okay with me. Jesus said unto her, this perfect explanation for why he said what he said, let the children first be filled, for it is not meat, verse 27, it is not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to the dogs. So he says to the Syrophoenician woman, you're, you're nothing better than a dog. And I thought to myself growing up as a teenager, okay, this is inconsistent with who I know Jesus to be. I thought he's not going to go around calling people dogs, but here he is uh, metaphorically or proverbially kind of attaching this noun to this lady you're a dog and she answered and said to him, yes lord yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs and he said unto her for this saying go that way the devil has gone out of thy daughter and when she was come to her house she found the devil gone out and her daughter laid upon the bed and so externally it seems that jesus was discouraging the woman reminding her that the children or the Jewish people get priority over the Gentile dogs, the little dogs, Gentiles like her. In that day, Jewish people often called Gentiles dogs in a very derogatory way. And to the Greek, the Gentile, the word dog meant a shameless or audacious woman. To the Jews, it was equally a term of content. And yet, Yet, here's the explanation I discovered for the text. Jesus did not use the normal word for dogs. Instead, he softened it into little dogs or puppies, essentially reminding the woman of her place as a Gentile, yet not wanting to push her away. If you were listening to the MP3, you notice the tone of his voice changed. I imagine it did in uh, the text here as well as you read it, right? In Greek, diminutives are characteristically affectionate. Jesus took the sting out of the word. And he he was saying uh, to this lady, the little puppies, she's talking about the little dogs, the little dogs, uh, do not get the priority over the children. And, And the Syrophoenician woman, she says, yes, Lord, yet even the little puppies under the table eat the children's crumbs, eat from the children's crumbs. And so this woman responded with great faith. First, she accepted her low place. She humbled herself before Jesus by not debating the reference to little dogs. And whatever God says, just go with it, right? I don't know why people got to just fight, fight about and pontificate over every single little point. If God calls you a dog, fine, I'm a dog. I'll be a dog for Jesus, right? And even the little dogs under the table eat. And she could have said, who are you calling a dog? And she would never, uh, you know, submit it. To that, with that sort of attitude. She would not have received from Jesus what her daughter needed. But her faith-filled submission to Jesus brought the victory. Nothing appealed to our blessed Lord more than faith coupled with humility, Clark wrote. And the commentator Clark, again, he praised the prayer of this woman and showed that it had nine notable features. Number one, it's short. Number two, it's humble. Number three, it's full of faith. Number four, it's fervent. Modest, respectful, rational. Number eight, relying only upon the mercy of God. And number nine, persevering, continual. She stayed at it. Great thoughts here. To close out the chapter, verses 31 through 37, we see the healing of a deaf and dumb man. And again, departing, he was leaving from the coast of Tyre and Zion. He came unto the Sea of Galilee through the midst of the coast of Decapolis. Remember the ten cities, Decapolis there. And they bring unto him one that was deaf, and he had an impediment in his speech. And they beseech him to put his hand upon him. Take note that they begged Jesus to put his hand on him. And this was another example of intercession. Compassion is your hurt in my heart. And the friends of this troubled man had compassion, and they came and brought his need to Jesus. And Jesus took him aside. He put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. And Jesus used this curious manner of healing this man. Throughout his ministry, we know Jesus used very many different ways of healing. He healed with a word. He healed without a word. He healed in response to somebody's faith. He healed uh, in response to those who asked and healed those that he approached. Jesus didn't want to be tied down by any one method to show that his power was not dependent on methods, but upon the sovereign power of God. And so many people cared about this man and many possibly had prayed about his healing, but no one ever stuck their fingers in his ears and spit on his tongue like this. And so Jesus did something completely new to capture and catch this man's attention because he couldn't really uh, get it with just words. Through touch and through the use of spit, Jesus entered into the mental the uh, mental world of the man and gained his confidence And undoubtedly, Jesus knew that there was something special in the manner that he would minister to this man. He adapts his methods to the particular circumstances of the one with whom he is dealing with. Uh, If we could perfectly know these men, we would discover the reason for the methods. In each case, Christ adapted himself to the need of the man. And so I think it's just so interesting. God knows what we need. There are some people who are really outgoing. There's some people who are really shy, and God will minister to them exactly in the way that they need. Notice next, he sighed. He sighed. He groaned. Jesus sighed. Morgan said of Jesus, Behold, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Behold, a man exercising a ministry full of healing power and elemental light, but never forget that the service was costly. The sigh was an inward groan. It was our Lord's compassionate response to the pain and sorrow sin has brought into the world. It was also a prayer to the Father on behalf of the handicapped man. And straightway his ears were opened, and the string of his tongue was loosed, and he spake plain. Immediately his ears were opened, the speech impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. I, I like to use my sanctified imagination here and just imagine that he was probably speaking with perfect diction and maybe spoke clearer than anybody else in the room, anyone else in the area, because when Jesus heals the, healed this person, perhaps he just really made him whole. I don't know. But uh, the, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a deer or an heart and the tongue of the dumb shall sing, for in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. Mark wanted us to know that the Messiah was here to bring the glorious benefits of his rule. God is the one who comes in order to unstop the ears of the deaf and to provide song for the man of inarticulate speech. I think this is a very clear reference to Isaiah chapter number 35. And by the end of it all, Everyone had to conclude he has done all things well. Jesus does things well. There's no shoddy, slipshod work with him. It is true of creation, but it is even truer in his work of redemption. He has done all things well.